This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Evidence of learning loss induced by school policy shifts in response to COVID is continuing to grow. In North Carolina, research shows that the learning loss was across the board for students in cities, students in suburbs, students in rural towns. But the greatest losses were for disadvantaged students, for Black and Hispanic students, and for those who learned online. Now, we have another report that shows much the same pattern from a collaborative research team that has looked at research and, and data from across the country. They have looked at 2.1 million students in 10,000 schools in 49 states. I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange one of the authors of this report, Thomas Kane of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. It's, it's nice to be here. Well, Tom, we want to dig into your study and find out just how you did everything. But first, we want to give our listeners the bottom line. Judging from the data, you have been able to analyze how large was the overall learning loss during the course of the pandemic? There were two very different uh, pandemic experiences. Um, in some parts of the country, as you know, schools um, largely stayed open during 2021. Um, and in those areas, students lost about seven you know, to 10 weeks of instruction uh, because rem remember, uh, you know, almost everybody was out in, in the spring of, of 2020. But uh, so the schools that returned largely in person during 2021 lost about seven to 10 weeks overall. But gaps in achievement by race and by uh, school poverty did not widen. However, in about a fifth uh, of classrooms or students um, nationally, uh, schools were closed for at least you know, half the year. They were in remote instruction for half the year during 2021. And in those places, the losses overall were much larger. Um, the, uh, and they were and the losses were very, very different for blacks and whites and for high income and low income schools. So like in, in high income schools, uh, uh, when their district went remote for uh, at least half the year, students lost about 13 weeks um, of instruction, but in the low income schools, uh, um, so, uh, reduced price lunch rates over 75%. Students had very dramatic losses. They, they lost about 22, 23 weeks of instruction. That's about 0.45 student level standard deviations for your listeners out there that, that think in terms of standard deviation units, but extremely large losses. So you are talking about instruction here. But yeah. I thought you had achievement data, student test performance yes. data. So I would have said that's learning. I mean, yeah. measuring anything is measuring learning, not just instruction, because you might yeah. not have had instruction, but you might have continued to learn because you were being taught by your parents at home or you found some other ways to learn. But, uh, but, so, but you really, by instruction, you mean learning, actually. Yeah, I mean learning. And, and I've actually, internalized it, yeah. Yes, Paul, and, and the, 
again, I've, I've been trying to be bilingual here um, for people who, who don't want to talk in standard deviation units. Um, the NWEA data. Is, that's the data you use. Yeah, that's, that's NWEA. You know, these alphabet things, I don't, I don't understand alphabets. Yes, so. <laughs> the national what? <laughs> so, so NWEA, I, I think now NWEA is the, is the name, but originally it was Northwest Educational Assessment. Uh, I, I think they've, they've just, they've just like MDRC is no longer Manpower Demonstration Research. So, so what is that entity, NWEA? Is it a government agency or? So no, no. It's a it's a nonprofit assessment provider that that about um, twenty five percent of schools around the country use. Uh, um, it's that's it's an assessment that's given three times per per year, and um, so for our purposes, uh, the NWEA data are extremely helpful um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, you know the because they're uh, uh, an online test scores are available almost immediately so we can give the field quick feedback on just what we're seeing. But then this, the second big advantage um, is that different kids are taking the test at different times of the year. So NWEA uh, gets to see, okay, in this district, there was 10 weeks in between the fall and the spring test. In this other district, you know, there were maybe 18 weeks between the fall and the spring, uh, on the fall and winter tests. Um, and that allows them to estimate what is the effect of an additional instructional week in a typical school year. And it was using those relationships that I was doing the translation from standard deviation to to instructional weeks. Well, that, that's re really helpful explanation. And uh, now, but this is not a national probability sample, Ben. This is sort of something else. It's all the students who participate in this particular type of testing. That, that's right. About yes. a quarter of the schools across the country use. Yes. And How does it compare to the nation as a whole, the students who part, you know, are in, in WEA testing? So actually, so in, in the report, uh, we, we do sort of describe how this uh, sample uh, compares to the national sample of, of schools in this grade range. And it's, they're, they're very similar on most characteristics. I, I think there was a, a, a small difference in the percent um, uh, Hispanic and there was a, I believe the NWA sample had a larger share of suburban districts, but not dramatically so. Like it, it, it was, it's remarkably similar in observables, at least to the national sample. So it's a fairly representative, I mean, if it's true for this group of students, it's probably true in general, uh, it sounds like. Now, but you, but you're really talking about kids in in elementary and middle school, is that right? Not high yes. kids. So this, so we focused on uh, grades three to eight, math and reading. So, um, and how do they get the data? Do they, they the schools agree? To, what are the benefits they get from participating in this program? Why do schools give NWEA this information? Because they don't have to. By the way, one thing I should just clarify is we, NWEA knows which schools and districts are 
um, are in their sample. We didn't. So all of the data we provided them was merged on to their data before they shared it back with us. So, so we didn't know, you know, which schools or which districts, uh, um, you know, we were looking at in these data. But dis, but in, but districts share these data with NWEA to, to get back reports uh, like the report we provided, but also you've probably seen a, a number of the NWEA you know, reports during the pandemic, just reporting on what they're seeing in terms of achievement losses uh, and uh, achievement growth. And it's- Yes, nothing quite as definitive as your study, but there were some earlier studies that are very consistent with what you're reporting here. Yes, well, the, the, the distinction here is um, we added on the school closure data from, um, from the return to learn tracker at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, so, so we, previous in previous reports, we knew that achievement had declined, and we even knew from NWA's reporting that achievement had declined more. You know, for African American students and Latino students, and in high poverty schools. But what we didn't know was the the degree to which that was related to school closures. And one of our surprising findings is that gaps did not grow between um, blacks and whites and high and low income schools in areas where schools remained in person, but they did grow um, in areas where schools were, were largely remote. Well, I think I, I understand how you did this study, but you correct me if I got it wrong. I think you first look at how much kids learned between 2017 and 2019 when schools were as usual, that sort of business as usual. That's right. You looked at what happened between 2019 and 2021 when all this, you know, um, interruptions occurred, when all the interruptions occurred. And then you, then you sort of project how they should have done if business as usual had stayed in place. Right. And, and then you find out, well, what's the difference between business as usual and what you actually found? Between? Yes. Is that what you did? Yes, Paul. And, and thank you for pointing that out because I don't want listeners to think that like kids are literally forgetting stuff. Like, like so kids are, achievement is growing. When I say loss, I mean a loss relative to what their a pre-pandemic normal growth would have been. Like so, um, so it's it's it, kids are still learning. Kids learn, um, uh, but they're they're just not learning nearly at the rate we would expect them to based on pre-pandemic uh, relationships. Well, when I look at the data, Tom, I, I see that uh, overall, it seemed, it, I'm, I am inferring this from, from some things in your report. You don't actually directly say that, so I'm checking it out. <laughs> uh, they learned, overall, they learned about 0.12 standard deviations less in math. You know, that's about a tenth of a standard deviation in math and 0 0.08 in reading, but I mean, they're about the same. So we, we could just say they learned about a tenth of a standard deviation less. You, is that the right way to look at this, which it might be 
you know, two or three months. I'm talking about just across the board, not getting into gaps or anything like that. That's one way of looking. Another way I looked at it was if you took the places that had in-person learning and they were no, and they were low poverty schools, the very, the, the, you know, the, the best situation you identified. It's a low poverty school and there's, there's fully in-person instruction. You had a figure which, you know, at one tail of the distribution, you, you shared yeah. that. And, and there was still learning loss. Yes, it was about, it was about a 0.2 standard deviation, uh, you know, learning loss in, in those places. In math and less in reading, quite a yeah. bit less in reading. So I, yeah. I got a 0.05, not such a big loss in reading. Uh, but, um, but still, COVID had a bad effect everywhere, no matter what you did. It wasn't, you could beat the COVID. But, but remember, Paul, like almost everybody was out in the spring of 2020. And so, and so, um, so some of the loss was even, so in the places that were in person during 2021, some of the loss that we're measuring was because they were out in the, in the spring of 2020. Now, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Some of it also is probably due to like, you know, um, all the anxiety and the interruptions and the family stress and so forth. And we don't know how much was what, but, but, but you're right. Even in places that were in person during 2021, um, uh, there were losses. But then your key finding is that those losses are much graver when there is a switch, prolonged switch to digital learning. And that loss is particularly large for disadvantaged students, whether it be by ethnic background or whether it be by the poverty level of the school. You, you know what actually, Paul, so here was one of the surprising findings in here. Yes, that's right. That, that, but it was mostly based on the characteristics of, based on the school rather than on subsets of students within the school. Like that it, there are very few things that, that we've studied over time where there's not a huge amount of within school variation, but not in this case. Like in, in this case, what we're seeing is that African-American students lost ground, but not within schools. It was because the schools that they were attending were the schools that lost a lot of ground dur during uh, the, the um, the pandemic. So the black-white gap did not grow within schools. It, it grew because the schools that were disproportionately, that African-American students disproportionately attended higher poverty schools that when the pandemic hit, lost the most ground. Well, Tom, you know that I wrote a book uh, from Horace Mann to virtual learning. Uh, <laughs> And I was saying, you know, things are getting better and better and we're gonna go into virtual learning uh, and it's gonna really be the, the world of the future. Now, admittedly, I wrote that 10 years ago and admittedly, this isn't typical online and this is not the kind of online learning that the people who celebrated it, um, you know, were, were, you know, what were thinking online learning would be. This was panicky. Uh, online learning where you threw anything on the screen just to have something there for the students to do. But still, still, this is a condemnation of remote learning, isn't this? 
Well, it, it does. Uh, so I don't know. So the caveats that you described, Paul, are, are, are the right ones that like to some extent, um, this is not necessarily a fair uh, judge of, you know, what what a, a like a well-organized online experience would look like, but um, but it does make me uh, actually. I feel like we 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 saw we've seen evidence of this before that that um, that it's it's rare for sort of a a virtual experience uh, to mimic, you know the effects of an in-person, you know, experience. And, and I, I think we're just seeing an amplified version of that. Well, so I, I can't resist uh, pointing out that uh, 11 of the 13 states in, that you identify as mostly in-person uh, voted for Donald Trump in 2020. You know, it's it it is so like we you know obviously we don't spend a lot of time in the paper discussing this, but but there have been other papers that that look at at this, and it's not just between states; it's within states. Um, uh, there's a relationship between uh, the you know the um, partisan. Uh, leanings of the local population and whether or not they decided to stay open or closed. And, and so, so there was, there, there did seem to be a partisan uh, component to these school opening and school closure decisions. Yeah, well, I, I lived part of the year in Palo Alto, California. They hardly had any COVID there and they stayed closed all the time. Yeah. And get more liberal than Palo Alto, uh, California. Uh, and so they think that they're all pro-education, but aren't they aware of what they're doing to their kids? Well, I, that's part of the reason why we published this, you know, why we, you know, we're, we're trying to get the word out around uh, this re report is that like the, to some extent, Here's one way to think about what we found is that um, is that every school district faced a choice. Like, do we do we uh, stay open and risk a surge in COVID, uh, or do we close and accept uh, a loss in student learning? I don't think so. I don't think these achievement losses are a surprise. Um, rather, the way to think about them is, okay, these are a bill that we've gotten for a public health measure that was taken on our behalf. And, you know, and communities like Palo Alto or other communities that decided to go remote, oh, students, um, you know, uh, uh, a dramatic effort in the next couple of years to help students catch up. Catch up. Um, well, that's and, another topic that um, I don't think we have a lot of evidence on. But you know what I the evidence I have seen from other school closures over the 
over the years. And, um, you know, there's not been a lot of them, but there's been some closures due to school strikes in Argentina and Chile and student strikes in Chile and, and war in Europe. Uh, and so we, and we've had economists come in and look at kids when they grow up, become adults many years later, and they find serious uh, effects on their uh, earning capacity. So it's not like this gets made up. It's not an automatic makeup kind of thing. It, right. I don't think we should expect that this catch-up is going to happen just as a natural um, uh, thing. Actually, again, because we're working with NWEA, um, you know, and the NWEA scores are, are, are collected, you know, several times a year, what we're seeing so far is not consistent with above, you know, with a rapid bounce back. Like, so the, you know, it's for, for those who are thinking that these results are just a result of kids not taking the test very seriously in fall 21, but then, you know, once they got reaccustomed to school, they're, they're, they must've taken, done a lot better in the winter 22, no. Uh, they're, they're, um, I, I think that's wishful thinking. And, and at least from what we've seen so far, that's that this bounce back um, is not going to happen on its own. It's, it's going to require um, a lot of work uh, by school districts. You know, learning is a slow and steady process. Every once in a while you have a flash and you can leap forward. <laughs> I don't think there are a lot of great leaps forward in education. I think it's mainly turtles, uh, you know, uh, yeah. pulling their way down the road. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's very concerning. Uh, what would you do for interventions? Well, that's a great question, Paul. And I think as a country, we need to start to shift, not just the thinking about um, effect sizes, but thinking about um, effect sizes times the proportion of, of kids we think we can treat with these things. And, um, and so there's been a lot of discussion of tutoring. Uh, and like there is pre-pandemic research that suggests um, impacts of tutoring around like 0.38 student level standard deviations or in the metrics I was using before about 19 weeks uh, but um, but that's a very intensive model like what you know fewer than four students per tutor in person uh, you know trained tutors working four is too many yeah you know I played the piano and when I was a little boy I learned the piano the only possible way of teaching any kid how to play the piano, it's the most difficult thing in the world to do, other than learning how to play the violin, um, <laughs> in the same category. But, you know, if you don't have a teacher just looking over your shoulder and telling you, you've got to move that fourth finger, you can't just leave that fourth finger out of the story, you know, you're never going to learn how to play the piano. You have to have a one-to-one -one tutor. And under yes. that, you can have very rapid learning. But... That's incredibly expensive. Right. And there will be some kids that will benefit from that kind of thing, but that's not going to be the way that we're going to be able to make up for these losses, given that they're so widespread. So um, like some of the other options that we see school districts trying are, um, you know, summer programs, uh, but 
Um, but in the typical year, I think about 6% of kids attend a summer program. So like, even if we tripled that, uh, we got, you know, 18% of kids, that's just not, and the magnitudes of the impacts there are about, you know, um, 0 .0, uh, 0 0.09 uh, standard deviations. Uh, so that's just, even if we gave all kids tutors that, I mean, all got all kids to show up for summer school, um, that, that wouldn't make up for much of a difference. Double dose math is another one people are, are talking about, but like double dose math is like tutors in that we have to go, where, where are you gonna find all the math teachers uh, to teach this? Like the, the, the alternative, honestly, that seems logistically the most achievable and um, is extending the school year. But it's also, you know, one of the least popular, uh, you know, but I feel like it's gonna be sort of by process of elimination when people see, hey, look, there's no way we can do tutoring at a big enough scale. There's, there's no way we can do enough double dose math to, to get there. Um, summer school, holy cow, we can't get, you know, kids don't want to show up to summer school. It'll be by process of elimination that people, I think, will, will come to realize that, wait, extending the school year, paying, you know, even if you have to pay teachers and bus drivers and janitors more to work those extra six weeks, if we did that, an extra six weeks of school for the next couple of years, that could make a, a big down payment on, on this. My only fear is that um, because it's unpopular and because it's gonna take a while to open people's eyes to the fact that it's, it's the logistically most uh, you know, um, a realistic alternative that it, it, by the time we realize that it, it might be too late to negotiate these contracts and, and, and make it happen. I hope that's not. Uh, yeah, no, and I'm worried too that we're going to hide our heads under a bushel or, or stick our head in the sand and, and just uh, stop testing students and uh, saying, you know what, I don't believe those tests anyhow. And, uh, and the problem will go away because people don't uh, have the information to know how serious the problem is. And that's why I think your study is so important, Tom. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with Thomas Kane, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's the author of a nationwide study of learning loss during the 2021 school year. Hey, I shouldn't say the author. There are many authors. This is a very collaborative effort. Uh, and so uh, they have produced a report that shows uh, widespread uh, increases in gaps between the advantaged and the disadvantaged in the United States. So thank you, Tom, for joining me. Thank you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education X website.